The Jewish views on supporting the Manchester bombing victims. We speak to the charity employing Israeli techniques in order to help. Third generation survivors. David Polak tells us about the psychological implications. And Israeli guide dogs. Why Dinka the Labrador's recent visit to the UK included an invitation from Ambassador Mark Regev. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The British charity Heads Up is using Israeli psychological techniques to help those affected by the Manchester bomb. Scottish rabbi Dov Ben Yaakov Kurtzman and Frenchman Maurice Benaim have both lived in Israel and know about the two stage process which focuses on memory structure. A pop up clinic was opened by them in the centre of Manchester, which was manned by 70 mental health professionals who've received training from the techniques Israeli developer Professor Uri Gidron and we'll be speaking to a representative from the charity later in the programme. A story in the Sunday Times seems to reveal that the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn once attended a ceremony in Tunisia where wreaths were laid honouring a terrorist who helped kill 11 Israeli athletes at the 1972 Olympics. In a column he wrote for the newspaper in 2014, Mr Corbyn described the event as poignant. The chief executive of the Jewish Leadership Council said it's high time Jeremy Corbyn clarifies his views regarding Palestinian terrorism. It comes as Mr Corbyn defended his description of Hamas as friends during a general election television interview. He said the way in which he used it at a meeting was inclusive language when he was promoting the idea of a two-state solution. A new poll from the American-based Anti-Defamation League claims levels of hate towards Jews in the UK have fallen slightly since 2015 and are now less prevalent than in France and Germany. The ADL found that 10% of those polled held anti-Semitic feelings and that far fewer people now believe that Jews care more for Israel than they do for Britain. The family of the late Lord Janna have expressed their immense relief after six claimants against his estate dropped their civil suits. They'd alleged child sexual abuse by the Labour peer. It marks the end of a long fight for the family. Lord Janna's children, Daniel, Laura and Marion, are seeking a meeting with the chair of the National Child Abuse Inquiry, Professor Alexis Jay, to try and get their father's name completely removed as a separate strand of the inquiry. And finally, a monument has been unveiled in Prague's main train station, honouring the parents of those children who were saved by Sir Nicholas Winton from Nazi death camps and then fostered out in the UK. Most of the parents died in the Holocaust. Those of the children who are still alive, many of them very elderly now, were at the ceremony. Sir Nicholas, who died two years ago at the age of 106, arranged eight trains to carry nearly 700 children from Czechoslovakia to Britain. That's the news. It's time for the sport now with Andrew. Thank you very much, Viv. Boxer Tony Milch claimed his 13th professional win at the weekend, though admitted he was disappointed with his performance. Beating Lithuanian Arvidas Trizono on points, the 36-year-old said, I was a little bit disappointed with my performance. It was a tough night. I had to dig deep, but it was a great learning curve. The Israeli football season ended with something of a surprise after Bnei Yehuda upset the odds in beating Maccabi Tel Aviv to win the Israeli FA Cup. Maccabi were taking part in their third consecutive final and looking for a second win in three years. However, 
After a goalless 120 minutes, the underdogs won the shootout to claim the trophy for the third time in their history and their first title since 1990. And finally, Israeli interest at this year's French Open now lies with junior player Yishai Oliel. The youngster, who won the junior doubles tournament at Roland Garros last year, is Israel's last representative after Jonathan Ehrlich was beaten in the second round of the doubles competition. The only other Jewish player in Paris is Argentine Diego Schwartzman, though standing in his way of a place in the fourth round is the world number two Novak Djokovic. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed, and welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let us start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Now, on the front page, there are weeks that goes by when we do, frankly, imagine what will be on the front page because there's only one story in town. And sure enough, the election is the only story in town. So what's on the front page to do with the election? It's our last front page before June the 8th, the last front page before the country goes to the polls to decide who our next prime minister is going to be. And judge the polls, it's actually going to be a little closer than perhaps we were thinking. It was obviously going to be a runaway victory, a foregone conclusion for Theresa May. Now, if you're a Labour Party supporter, there's potentially cause for some optimism there. And if you're a member of the Jewish community, maybe some cause for concern, I imagine. So yeah, Jeremy Corbyn is contesting the election to be prime minister. We have a column this week by the Prime Minister Theresa May in which she says she will be the Jewish community's champion. She's outlined all the different areas that she feels our readers should vote for her on zero tolerance towards anti-Semitism, standing up for Israel, safeguarding Shechita, protecting our schools and shuls, boosting trade with Israel, really hitting all the points hard on the nail. Unfortunately, as we speak here now, we are two years into a pursuit, shall we say, of the Labour leader that so far has remained fruitless. So we have compared what she has said, Theresa May on the front, on all those bullet points with a simple statement that after two years, Jeremy Corbyn still hasn't spoken to us. I think this is absolutely the case. We have been trying very hard, it has to be said, and I don't think we're the only Jewish media outlet to have gone after this interview with great efforts and, and putting a great deal of time into it. I have to say, at this point in time, Jeremy Corbyn would be one of my ideal interviews, probably of, of anyone that I could possibly speak to at this moment. That said, we, you know, we we highlight on the front page that he hasn't spoken to us, that he hasn't committed his pledges, if you like, directly to the Jewish community. It's worth pointing out, though, that whereas the Conservative Party manifesto didn't feature any direct pledges on, on issues of Jewish concern, either on Israel or on anti-Semitism, that wasn't the case with the Labour manifesto, which actually was altered after concerns were raised and, and became far more balanced in terms of its approach to Israel, specific condemnation of terrorist rocket attacks against Israel and also about continuing to tackle anti-Semitism. Obviously, for some people, this will be too late anyway. The fact that we've had more than a year of cases of anti-Semitism within the party or, or, or other issues of offence to the community and that some of those haven't been dealt with adequately will be more than enough to put off people before this election period even began. But certainly, I think Jeremy Corbyn could send out quite a strong message by doing an interview with the Jewish media. He went out of his way this week 
to join the leaders debate even though Theresa May wasn't there he showed himself ready to go up against the Prime Minister and I have to say during this week in particular it does appear that day by day he's grown with confidence he appears to be far more relaxed than perhaps it's comfortable for a politician to normally be but it's certainly going to be a a very interesting next week. It certainly will. And in the interest of fairness, has Mr. Corbyn or indeed the Labour Party given any reasons to why they have not given you guys an interview yet? I've never had the impression that they they kind of were not going to do it ever. I imagine that it wasn't it was never going to be the easiest thing to get a yes to. I also imagine that there's time aspects during an election campaign in particular but I think it's because of the problems the community has had with the Labour leader with his track record and some of the stuff that's gone on while he's been leader that it's all the more important that he speaks directly to a Jewish audience perhaps more so than than a general audience. Just, Justin's a little bit more conciliatory shall we say than me I mean as far as I'm concerned if there's one community in the country that merits that deserves that demands a one-to-one with Jeremy Corbyn, it is the Jewish community. And he has patently and repeatedly avoided any one-to-one with the Jewish journalist, be it at the Jewish News or any other publication or media that you that you care to mention. There was no mention of key Jewish and Israel issues in the Tory manifesto because they didn't have to. They, they've been exemplary. Not only Theresa May, but her predecessors as well. have just They just get it. They get the concerns of the community. They understand the commitment that the community has for Britain and the role it plays in British society. Okay, well, in, in other news slightly, Jeremy Corbyn is still sort of the foundation of this particular story. But Emma Barnett, the BBC broadcaster, has been up against some abuse since Mr Corbyn appeared on her programme. Why is that? Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn did the Women's Hour programme on BBC Radio 4 with Emma Barnett, I think on Tuesday morning, and she was quite strong in her questioning. He was very weak in his answers because he wasn't able to give the actual figures for how much the new childcare policy was actually going to cost, and he was fumbling around on his iPad and so on trying to look for the actual figure. And as you can imagine, she was pressing and pressing and making the point that he, he didn't have this basic number. In the wake of that, in the minutes afterwards, she faced quite a lot of anti-Semitic abuse, being called a Zionist shill, being accused of writing Zionist propaganda for many years at the early part of her career, on Twitter in particular. And after this, Jeremy Corbyn appeared actually a couple of hours later at the launch of his party's faith and race manifesto and was asked specifically about this question and gave a pretty strong answer in condemnation of, of any abuse received by any person going about their, their work. And he said that you know anyone that puts himself up for election must expect to take questions. Uh, which is a response you would expect Jeremy Corbyn to make. What I think is most telling about this is that in the wake of that interview with a Jewish journalist interviewing Jeremy Corbyn, this isn't the right-wingers calling her a shrill Zionist and attacking her and being racist and anti-Semitic. It's not EDL or Britain First or even UKIP. These are Labour supporters and Corbyn backers. Well, all the same, I am sure that uh, Mr Corbyn and indeed the Labour Party do not necessarily condone such behaviour. Also, we need to point out that Theresa May is not the only leader that you've spoken to. I believe that Tim Farron has also been speaking to Jewish News. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we, we managed to speak to Tim Farron when he launched his kind of pitch to minority ethnic communities. It was a, it was a very, I think, forthright conversation with him, in particular the way he was willing to explicitly 
speak about how, how Israel would be kept close as a friend uh, and held, I think embraced as a friend or, or, or something close to that. One thing that also stood out kind of on a, on a negative side, perhaps, but I think is part of a wider problem about the use of the word Zionist in this country, is that when I asked him whether he would be happy to describe himself as such, he described himself in, in, the, in the terms that you would expect of a Zionist, but he wouldn't actually use that term. He said, you know, people can, can interpret that how they will. Interesting. Yes, I remember you mentioned that actually a couple of weeks ago on this program that the term Zionist almost comes with some sort of ramifications of those who don't truly understand that it is not an evil word. Okay, I think we need to move on from all things election because there are other stories in the paper, but I am duty bound to tell you that full details on the forthcoming election can be found online. So please do make sure that you do your homework before going to the polls for a list of all candidates and all the parties standing before next Thursday the 8th of June. Let's shoehorn a couple of stories in because we've pretty much used up all of our time talking about election. So let's look at Donald Trump. And he's now saying he's going to keep the American embassy in Tel Aviv. Phew. Gosh, that was a close one, wasn't it? Can you imagine the powder keg in the the Middle East that would have blown up had the American embassy been relocated to Jerusalem, which is obviously the capital of of, of Israel and and the heartland of its democracy and its parliament, but still a matter of some contention, as we well know. This is Trump's track record for spouting undiluted nonsense and coming up with these bold and desperately dangerous claims. Obviously, we are in a place now where we need calm heads and we need the Palestinians and the Israelis to find a mutual sense of of common understanding and sympathy. So throwing in a real hand grenade like moving the uh, American embassy and the symbolism that that entails from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is, is certainly setting the subject of reconciliation back. So I'm pleased that wise heads have prevailed. Okay, and we've time for one more. Rabbi Joseph Dweck, we mentioned him in last week's paper review, but the saga continues. That's right. You'll remember uh, just last week we had a fight between two prominent Orthodox rabbis on the subject of homosexuality. You had in one corner Rabbi Joseph Dweck, who gave a very forthright and brave account of his views on homosexuality. He actually said that, in his, in his own words, the homosexual revolution is a fantastic development for humanity. Pretty bold for any Orthodox rabbi to be going down those lines. But he was immediately attacked by Rabbi Aaron Barsus of a small community in Golders Green. And he basically announced that he was going to do a major lecture. Posters went out and so on. This became a major thing online, encouraging his followers to to attend the lecture and so on. And this took place earlier in the week. And he said that the views expressed by Rabbi Dweck were were poisonous. He also compared uh, those views and that approach to Louis Jacobs and the way that Louis Jacobs broke away from mainstream orthodoxy. Uh, I think that whereas Rabbi Bosses might see that as being unadulteratedly negative, many people, you know, will see the approach that Rabbi Jacobs took to break away, to form a Zorti, to form a slightly diluted version of orthodoxy, perhaps, certainly had positives in it as well. Indeed. Well, I think that it is obviously the case that we have one Jew and about three or four opinions, but that's the nature of our programme, of course. There we have it. That's where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk.
The people of Manchester are slowly but surely getting back to some sense of normality following Salman Abadi's suicide attack at Manchester Arena last month. People from all walks of life have tried to help the victims of the bombing, including the charity Heads Up. They've set up a pop-up clinic in Manchester known as MA17, which employs Israeli psychological techniques to treat their patients. To find out more about this, Clive Roslin has been speaking to Rabbi Dov Benyaakov Kurtzman, one of the founders of Heads Up. Dov, this amazing thing you've started up, a pop-up clinic. Tell me what it's about and how you've done it so quickly. Well, our charity Heads Up was basically registered only in the end of 2016 in December. And our aim is to set up a clinic in every town that would respond on an immediate basis to a terror attack or another type of mass traumatic event, having uh, first responders reach the scene within minutes. But on uh, last week and a half ago on Monday night, there was a terrorist attack and we weren't ready yet. So the only thing that we thought we could do is to put up an emergency trauma support centre in the middle of Manchester. And it took us three days to do it, which is quite quick. That's extraordinary. Uh, Yep. And in that time, we managed to train over 70 mental health professionals, psychologists, social workers, etc., we contacted EasyDread and they paid for the tickets for our experts to come over from Israel. We managed to put together through generous people in town in the Manchester community to donate a space in the centre of town and a company called SQR in London, a security company, donated our mobile unit that we can use to go out and do outreach around the city of Manchester. Now, and you're using these Israeli techniques especially? Yes. The whole thing is based on a very original, unique, evidence-based, researched protocols. There are two specific time limits. One is the first 72 hours specific protocol that we use then. Unfortunately, we missed that timeline because it took us a few days to get ready. And there's another protocol that basically we use within the first two weeks. And that is the one that we've been basing it on for this particular event. Although all our people were trained in both protocols, which means that we are prepared now in the unfortunate and hopefully not happen. But we know that it's probably well expected the next attack. So how many people are being looked after by you? Looked after is the right expression. Well, we reckon there is uh, between 800 and 1,600 directly affected people. That means that out of the people that were at the arena itself, there's between eight and 1,600 people directly affected and needing our assistance. There is a second wave, which means that people that weren't at the arena but know directly somebody who was at the arena and they were quite close to them, that would mean their direct family or their very close friends. And there's a third wave, which is people that are in neither camps, which are affected by what they've seen on the TV or read in the newspapers, heard in the radio, and they too can be affected. So there's well over 2,000 people that we know of, as far as estimations are concerned, that are affected. And we're starting to see them come into our centre now. Now, how do they get to hear about you? Okay, so this was a difficult one for us because we were spending most of our resources and concentration on getting people trained up 
in time to see people and getting the word out wasn't easy. So basically we we relied on the press and the TV coverage, which became quite extensive. And so now that we've bought ourselves a little bit of time, we're starting to get leaflets printed up and, and we're going to be going out into town and, and distributing these. But how can you get these people that you get to do the training and to help the people? How do you teach them so quickly? Well, we um, are using 69 years of unfortunate experience that we have in Israel dealing with stress and trauma. We're using uh, techniques developed by Tel Chai College in Kiryat Shmona, which you listeners probably know or heard of, which has been a war-ridden city for many decades. And Dr. Moshe Farhi, who has develop these protocols is on our team so we have the author himself as part of our team and we have the experience on how to build these things quickly it's the Israeli it's the startup nation way is to do things very quickly and it still must be terribly difficult to get inside the heads of these people who have been so traumatized well, yes, we are basically, we're not giving them psychotherapy treatment. Okay, that's only if it's necessary. And that would be a little bit further down the line. What we are doing is giving them a intervention to get them up and functioning again. In other words, during the first 72 hours, there can be a natural, not pathological effect, which means that somebody can have a natural reaction to shock and it can be quite serious. And that would affect uh, their functioning and up until quite, you know, they can be totally paralyzed. And our protocols help them get out of that on an immediate basis and functioning again. The second protocol, which is what we're using now, is to give them a follow up to that and to help them process better what happened in the event. In other words, the traumatic thing that happened to them, we help them reprocess that. So we're not going into deep dynamic psychotherapy. That's not, uh, it's actually more harmful to do that. So that's what we don't do. Uh, what we do do is help them become more functional. And that means that we can, we can do it quite quickly. That's what I find so unbelievably surprising that you managed to do it so quickly. Forgive me for asking this, but how do you manage to do that? I mean, the, these people are so traumatized. How do you manage to, to make them, cal- as it were, calm down? Well, the, we use, our, all our stuff is based on neuroscience and uh, cognitive psychology, behavioral psychology. So basically, what happens in the brain, if you allow me to give you a 30-second neuroscience lesson, oh, please do. is that there's two parts, you know, very simplified. There are two parts of the brain that are really involved in this traumatic event. You have your prefrontal cortex, which is the cognitive side, the thinking side of the brain. Let's call it the CEO of, of, of the brain. Does all the thinking, does all the problem solving, and all the calculations. That's one, that's the part of the brain that generally we function on on a daily basis. We have another part of the brain, which is the emotional part of our brain. In scientific terms, it's called the limbic system. And in the limbic system, there's an alarm system, and that alarm system is called the amygdala. Now, when there's a traumatic event, a frightening event, a fearful event, then the amygdala sets off an alarm and puts the whole body into an emergency mode. Now, when it's an extreme event like that, basically the amygdala hijacks the brain into an emotional state and shuts down 
the cognitive thinking state. So a person can become into confusion and he's totally an emotional human being and he can't think straight and can't function well because that's the front part of the brain. Our protocol comes in to reactivate that cognitive side of the brain. This is something revolutionary. It's not done anywhere else in the world. And we reactivate that side of the brain, taking back or releasing that hijacked situation and bringing the person back to a functional state. I understand. I think I understand. But the people who are doing this work for you, you and the others, have yes. they been training for a long time to do this? Well, the training, the, the, the research and the development of this has been going over for 20 years. Nowadays, the Israeli army use this for every combat soldier to learn. And the Ministry of Education in Israel has adopted this to teach to every school child. But the actual learning of it can be done reasonably quickly. And we managed to turn over a full class within uh, half a day for the basic training. Half a day? Um, half a day we can do it if, if you're a professional. Okay, if you're a professional and understand professional psychologist, we can give you training that would take half a day for you to understand what to do on the basic side. It will take longer for you to practice. And so we do another half a day of actual very intensive practice, which means after a full day, you're reasonably well practiced from the point of view of the theory and the practical. When we're not in, in, under such emergency Conditions. I mean, what we're talking about here is field conditions because the, the attack has already taken place. But when we're becoming a little bit, you know, afterwards and it's a bit more relaxed, we can then do two, three days, one week trainings with full practice involved. But generally speaking, if, if somebody has an education has a, and is an experienced therapist, we can do this in a reasonably quick way. Rabbi Dov Benyaakov Kurtzman, founder of the charity Heads Up and in turn the MA17 pop-up clinic, talking earlier in the week to Clive Roslin there and telling us why they have employed Israeli techniques in order to help the victims of the Manchester bombing cope with the psychological effects. For more information, or if you think that you'd benefit from the work that MA17 and in turn Heads Up are doing, then you'll find out how to contact them on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be back for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue Jane Goff and lawyer Denise Lester. They'll be discussing if being Jewish carries a burden. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to John Benjamin from the UK Friends of Israel Guide Dogs Centre. But first... We all think of victims of the Holocaust as being those who survived, being at the hands of the Nazis. But do you ever think of how it affects successive generations? David Polak is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist and grandchild of Holocaust survivors. And he's fronting an event at JW3 on the 11th of June, which explores how third generation survivors are affected by the Holocaust. Arts editor Kate Fulton is taking a well-earned week off, so I've been speaking to David to find out more about third generation dreaming about the Holocaust. I started by asking David to tell us what the purpose of the aforementioned event actually is. Well, the event is a, an opportunity for people that are what we consider third generation survivors, descendants of survivors of the Holocaust. And it's a chance for them to get together in a group to talk about their experiences of being Jewish, being people, connected in some way to the Holocaust through their family lineage. You see, someone listening to this might be forgiven for thinking, 
Possibly second generation they can understand, but third generation, why would the Holocaust affect third generations? Well, we know from research that traumas in families do extend beyond the next generation, successive generation. And, you know, the second generation is much more well publicised, much more known about. But of course, the third generation have been parented by the second generation. So the issues that affected the second generation, they may have transmuted to some degree, but they still continue to influence and affect the relationships within the family. And you're talking as third generation yourself? Third generation, yeah. I'm grandchild of two survivors. Grandmother was in a camp in Czechoslovakia and my grandfather was Berlin Jew who escaped to Switzerland in the war. So help us understand the mindset of someone who is third generation. Was that always spoken about when growing up? Did your grandparents often refer to it or did they not talk about it at all and therefore it always plagued you as to what they went through? Yeah, I think it's different for everybody. In my family, both my grandparents died when I was very, very small, so I had no direct contact with them at all. So the Holocaust was something I learnt about in books, catching fragments of conversations about what happened to my grandparents, perhaps from my dad or from, you know, my mum throughout time. And gradually having to put the piece of the puzzle together myself, second generation, you know, it's not true of all of them, but my father didn't want to talk about his parents' experiences at all. So it was really up to me to kind of excavate the past and really try and find out for myself what happened. But it's different for everybody. Some people are much more aware of what's happened in their families than others. Where do you think the line is crossed between moving on versus forgetting about the Holocaust? Mm. I think it's a difficult balance to be forever stuck in remembrance and Holocaust tourism and, and punishing oneself for what happened and that's not very productive. I think part of the task of the third generation really is to find a way of integrating this experience so it becomes part of who we are without dominating or becoming a burden in some way. That actually the Holocaust, things that have happened to our families, can actually become positive resources as well. It doesn't all have to be thought of as this terrible tragedy, which of course it was, but it also forms and shapes us in ways that may also be useful, seen, seen as positive. Now you see, obviously I don't know a lot about you yourself. I don't know whether or not you have any children, but have you any intention of, I suppose, creating them into fourth generation, as Mm. it were? Well, hopefully not. But these things, they're all unconscious. So things get communicated whether you like it or not. I do have children. And as much as I might try to shield them from as much as possible, particularly now they're quite young, I think inevitably they pick up on certain things, certain cues, things I'm probably not even conscious of. They hear words spoken if we're watching the news. I might refer to the Nazis or, you know, so they're they're hearing things, they're picking things up. Certainly more into adolescence, I suspect they'll start to ask more questions. So there is an awareness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. How much of what your family has been through in past generations has affected what you do career-wise? And perhaps let's explore a bit about what you do do career-wise. Sure, yeah. Well, I'm a psychotherapist. I've been involved in in working with people in this field probably for around 15, 15 years, maybe a bit more. I think the Holocaust inevitably had an impact on my family, uh, certainly on my grandparents, uh, my father's second generation, quite a troubled man, which perhaps precipitated the breakdown in in our family. My dad couldn't cope with uh, being a father, being responsible. And and ending up in the helping professions, I think, is one way in which 
the Holocaust has some direct impact on my life. Choosing to do a job where you're trying to help people make sense of their own psychological problems, I can't help but draw a connection somewhere along the line to that. How will this come across at the event that you are taking part in in JW3 on the 11th of June? Obviously, I'm not there to talk about myself on the day. I'm there to facilitate a discussion amongst other people that have been similarly or differently affected. I think it's such a personal thing that everybody has their own experience, their own relationship to the Holocaust and essentially to their own Jewish identity. I think a lot of the issues that come up for people are around trying to make sense of who they are as Jews. Whether your family was implicated in the Holocaust or not, just to be a Jew, you're affected by the Holocaust. It's in your your unconscious, it's in your conscious mind. It affects all of our identities to some degree. It's, It's part of our combined collective history. I don't want to sound like I'm putting it down, but is it in essence going to be a group counselling session? Is that a way of describing it? Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, it's a very, it's a one-off session in, in a sense, although we, you know, we do repeat these things perhaps every three or four months. It's really a chance to meet other people with whom you might share an experience, which, you know, in itself is therapeutic, of course, something about reducing isolation. People often struggle with these issues of identity. We talk in the in the blurb about dreams, that somewhere in our unconscious there is this memory, this experience that we're trying to make sense of. And being with other people that have similar experiences can really, really help people to make sense of things. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's, a counselling session per se but obviously I'm a therapist and the material that we're dealing with there will be some flavour of that. You say that this is something that although one off at the moment can be brought back and recur and things like that would you say that you have seen people progress come out of their shell improve whatever the right expression is from taking part in such events yeah absolutely Uh, people often feel very relieved to find they're not the only one and often in families it is often left to one person in the family to try to to deal with to make sense of this so finding other people that are struggling in a similar way really does help people to come out to come forward in their lives And there are other groups and supportive environments that people then often go to afterwards, whether it's coming back to another discussion group or joining a more ongoing therapy group. There's lots of things available, particularly in London, geared around that. There seems to be associated with Holocaust survival for some, certainly not for all. This element of what can only be described as shame, which I think is horrendous that the victims, and I don't like the word victims so much, but the ones who were at the hands of those who perpetrated the most ghastly, ghastly crimes in history should feel this sense of shame. What would you say to people who maybe do still think like that? To be treated in the way people were treated is a humiliating experience. And, you know, it's inevitable that some sense of shame will persist, not just with the survivors, but through the generations. You know, why didn't we do more? Why didn't we fight back? All these kinds of questions that come up. How one overcomes one's sense of shame and recovers a a strong sense of identity or pride in their identity, I think part of that is about rebuilding a sense of collective community as well. The idea was to destroy everything, destroy people's identity, to break them down. And I think reclaiming some of that is about the rebuilding that we're doing. It's a bit like the temple being destroyed. It's important to rebuild a sense of oneself after these events. And it's humiliating what happened to the Jewish people. It's it's a, a big humiliation. I know that you alluded to this slightly earlier on, and I know that you also said that individuals react differently to their own situation. 
But are there any telling signs that someone is affected by the Holocaust without actually knowing it? I think so. Depression and anxiety are common symptoms. Interpersonal problems, relationship problems tend to show up. Addictions, sometimes uh, eating disorders. You know, there are all kinds of symptoms that people can exhibit, which are, you know, normally down to or caused by a breakdown in family relationships that sometimes at its heart or, or in the background somewhere, there is the dislocation that the Holocaust has caused from people's identities, from people's sense of themselves and in their relationships with others around them. That's the real tragedy of the Holocaust. People may have survived and escaped the camps, but psychologically people are still carrying the scars of, of what happened. And this, you know, continues to influence their relationships with the world, our ability to trust others, to gain support from people both inside and outside of our communities. All of these things, it, it happens in, in that context. I'm not saying the Holocaust is the root cause of it all, but somewhere in the mix, those events have some impact on those things. Psychotherapist David Polak talking to me there about third generation dreaming about the Holocaust, which will be held at JW3 on the 11th of June at 11am. If you would like more information or indeed to book tickets, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. A reminder, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. Of course, when it's not shove what we do. That all-important address is coming up, but it does mean that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. And it's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all of those details can be found at our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, when it comes to those who are visually impaired, it's quite normal in the UK to expect someone in that situation to be offered the services of a guide dog. However, in Israel, did you know that it's still a relatively new phenomenon? Well, the Israel Guide Dog Centre ensures that those in need of such services get it. Dinka is one of the aforementioned working pooches, and she's been making history. To find out why, community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to John Benjamin from the UK Friends Division of the charity. Diana started by asking John to tell us a little more about Dinka. Dinka is six and a half, and for the first year or a little bit more than a year, she would actually, like all of the guide dogs, have been living with a volunteer carer in Israel with a kind of training routine, but not being formally trained as a guide dog. So in her formative years, she would have lived very often with students, a lot of them at Ben-Gurion University, would have been getting used to the sights and sounds of Israel, going to the beach and going to the, the mall and getting on buses. And because they're living with students, these puppies, they go to lectures and they have to be quiet and well behaved. But only after they're about 12, 14 months old, do they have the formal guide dog training, which is what she would have had. In and Hebrew, I gather. In, in Hebrew, absolutely. All the commands and are so, in Hebrew. You know, before the guide dog center existed, although there was a program in the formative years of Israel's existence, if you wanted a guide dog, you would have to go to the United States, possibly Britain, and the users, the Israeli 
Hebrew speaking users would have to learn commands in English because that's what the dogs were trained in. So the beauty of the center and Dinka being a case in point is that the dogs are trained obviously to understand Hebrew and to be matched with their partners. And that's a whole process, about a month long process on top of the five month training that they have. Right. And And she's uh, at present, her partner is Bracha. That's right. And they both came over to do a a lightning tour. That's right. (laughs) In in the UK. Dinka and Bracha were over last year as well. And then again last week. And that wasn't their first visit last year. I think this is something like their fourth visit to the UK. And they've been on visits also to the United States. And Dinka actually was the first dog from Israel, the first guide dog certainly, that came over after 2011 when the quarantine laws were lifted, 2011-2012. So she wouldn't have had to be quarantined for six months. That's right. Tell us a little bit more about the Guide Dog Centre in Israel. Does it compare with the one here in the UK? Well, the Guide Dog Centre in Israel was established a little bit more than 25 years ago. And as I say, the purpose was the, the founding director, who is still the director, Noach Braun in Israel, was aware that there was no program like this in Israel. He had travelled to the States, he'd seen guide dogs in operation in other countries, and he thought it was something that Israel should have. I mean, we're very used in this country to seeing, you know, the collection boxes, and guide dogs have been a part of the fabric of British society and, and sort of charitable giving for many decades but in Israel it's an, it's an unknown thing or, or until relatively recently. I, I might be quite wrong but I don't associate Israelis with dog lovers. Are they, are they as soppy about dogs as we are well, in the you, UK? You've, you've hit on an interesting point. If you go to Tel Aviv I've never seen so many pet shops. You wander up and down sort of Ben Yehuda and some of the main streets. Really? There are so many pet shops and little, you know, Pekingese and, and lap dogs and poodles trotting up and down. But Tel Aviv is not Israel completely and utterly. And yes. you're right, because there are there are cultural issues around some of the Orthodox communities, some of the Muslim communities. Obviously, dogs have a different status or, or no status really in their lives. And so for Israelis generally... Yeah, there, there there are lots of dogs around, and they're, they're they're quite well looked after and pampered. But guide dogs as working dogs is a relatively new phenomenon. And how long has Bracha and Dinka been together? They, they well, they would have been together if Dinka is six and a half years old, then roughly five and a little bit years. And the dogs work till they are around nine or ten years of age, and then they are retired because they obviously slow up a little bit and they yes. deserve, like like all of us, a retirement. And they can either stay with the families or the partner they've been living with, or they can go to sometimes the families that looked after them in their first year or somewhere else. So they have a, a, a retirement where they're not working. Right. And is there any... I mean, there is a UK association, isn't there? Friends of, so to speak. We exist in this country, the UK Friends, really to support what the Guide Dog Centre is doing in Israel. And the kind of people, as you can imagine, that are being helped in Israel are people who lose their sight or have impaired vision through disease, possibly over the course of a lifetime or through some traumatic event. In some cases, they are army veterans, Mm. people who've suffered in terrorist attacks or or other accidents. So a whole range of people. And if you imagine, God forbid, someone losing their sight or their vision becoming impaired at a young age when they have a whole life ahead of them, they want to be free to really live as full a life as possible to get around. And a guide dog 
strangely enough, does that in a way that just having a stick and walking along the street doesn't. doesn't. I think that's been well, and, well and, proved. And I think what people will say yeah. is if you walk along with a stick, people move out of the way because they want to give you space. If you walk along the road with a guide dog, they actually come up to you and it's a much more sociable thing as well. And it makes you feel less of a less sort of a social outcast. outcast. Absolutely. Well, that's all been extremely interesting and, and, and I think all, all of us wish particularly Dinka but also Bracha good luck in the future well, for the two of them Thank you and what we're very <laughs> pleased to be doing at the moment is expanding the centre quite considerably just so that we can produce more guide dogs so we have a big programme on at the moment and if people want to contribute to that that would be in absolute, absolutely yes. tremendous because we're adding a lot of capacity and there is a waiting list and we'd like to help as many people as we possibly can Of course You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today are Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue, Jane Goff, and Lawyer, Denise Lester. And the subject today is inspired by the interview we heard with Phil a little earlier on. He was speaking to psychotherapist David Polak about third-generation survivors and the effect the Holocaust has had on them. What with that and the countless other tales of suffering our ancestors have been through, we thought we'd ask, does being Jewish carry a burden? Denise, let's start with you. Have you ever felt that your being Jewish came with a burden at all? Yes, I think it's both a blessing and a burden, actually. I think that if you take Judaism seriously, you have a responsibility to the uh, environment and to the wider community and to affect change for the wider good, tikkun olam. And that imposes quite a heavy personal responsibility. And then there's all the other tenets which if you're inquiring and conflicted like me <laughs> you like to know and inquisitive you like to know about so then you get onto the realms of Jewish guilt which my Roman Catholic friends seem to say may be allied to open inverted commas and I Roman Catholic guilt so there are similarities across religions it's a blessing and a burden I think very much so but there's a rich richness about the religion culture and practice which is wonderful now Jane you, as we know, are a convert. Do you have the same sort of feelings or is it much easier for you? At the moment, it's, I think, much easier. I don't have that kind of history of it so far. I think... The guilt? Yeah, the guilt I've got because I was initially raised a Catholic, so maybe... You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe that never we went away. Beforehand. <laughs> But I'm still in that kind of throes of, of like a new birth where everything's so exciting and intense. But I think the burden for me today is my procrastination in learning because I think Denise said this richness and it definitely is. It's something I've never felt so close to. The richness of Judaism, including the ritual and its traditions and what's behind it all. I mean, I've, every day I think my goodness, why didn't I know that? And it's like I feel guilty that I don't have that bringing up to fall back on. But I was going to say, Jane, if it's any consolation, people that were brought up 
as Jews from birth, also don't know a lot of things that go on because they never happened within their own families. So also, Mm. as you go through life, you you also start to learn things. But the whole basis of being Jewish, if you're born Jewish, is that this is anyway what the Jewish religion is about. You have to carry this burden, this guilt, because you are supposed to show the rest of the world the right way. But I, but I think we carry a burden in another way, don't we? People that were went through the Holocaust put their burden onto their children, maybe unintentionally, and the mm-hmm. children carry mm-hmm. that burden, and maybe their grandchildren also carry that mm-hmm. burden. My grandmother, my grandparents on both sides came out of Lithuania and Latvia in pogroms, and my mother, to a certain extent, carried that guilt burden from her mother. And, and I think naturally unintentionally passed it on to myself and my brothers. Mm. And, and I guess unintentionally and naturally we pass it on to our children. I've never discussed this with my children, but it would be interesting to know from them as well how they mm. react. I think it's not only the issue of the Holocaust, it's the fact that we have been traditionally a nomadic people mm. and you know, there's an inherent insecurity of being in a host country, but yet never knowing where anti-Semitism will raise its ugly head. I mean, Tony's mentioned the pogroms. Certainly my late grandmother remembers the uh, soldiers coming in Poland when she was a, a child. And, you know, we now have the issue of extremism which is very much on the radar, and that uh, begets insecurity as well as the mm. right-wing neo-fascism. So people can think of being Jewish as a burden, and they're, they're conscious of the difference that they are, although we look the same except for the anti-Semitic stereotypes of uh, somebody with a hooked nose, etc. Yeah, yeah. It's a difficult one. It's a difficult what, one. what about, I mean, in Israel today, we've, we've now got our own country mm. as, as Jews, but we've still got that burden of doing things absolutely correctly, if we can, to show the other nations around. And we're not living in host countries. That is our host country. Mm. It, it is our own country. Mm. Mm. So I, I guess we still carry a burden to show others how to do things right. And sometimes mm. the Israelis don't get that right. Mm. But that's exactly what I was saying at the beginning, that that burden is meant That's what Judaism is about, Mm. because you have to show the right way to live. And therefore, it will always be a burden, because you are Mm. teaching it, which in a way, one of the greatest Jews of them all, if you see what I mean, Jesus tried to teach that lesson as well. Mm. And it turned into Christianity long after he died. Mm. Mm. But that's the, the whole Jewish ethic. But he was also put upon while he was living by, because he was teaching a form of Judaism. I mean, it was just another strain, wasn't it? Was well, it was, Judaism? if you like, Judaism. at that time, Reform Judaism, mm. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. yes. Is there such a thing, I want, you know, because we're talking about not just, you know, hundred years of persecution you're talking thousands of years of persecution and whether that through that there's been a collective there's like a collective memory that is almost genetic that's what yes i think i think there is certainly common dna strands and there and i think that jewish people can be inherently anxious and that transmutes itself into the quest for self-knowledge and psychoanalysts Mm. that goes on and you know people like woody allen um, with his introspection 
you know, going, going back to what um, Clive has said and to teach the right way, we are supposed to be a light unto nations. Um, and I say that not in any sort of supremacist or stance at all. I say that you flipping over the flip side of the burden is is the blessing because mm, mm. there is such a richness about being Jewish in terms of mm. all its multifacets. It can be the food from wherever, from Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Middle Eastern, the richness in music, the richness in culture, the desire, the desire to achieve and aspire, which drives people, that feeling of being an outsider. And people who are critical of us say, we have sort of disproportionate success and there's a club, but it's not that. It's that inherent insecurity mm. and the burden flipping over to being a blessing and, you know, desire mm. to achieve. Does that inherent insecurity make us push further forward to achieve, do you think? Of course. Yes, yes, yes absolutely. Pushes us into it. Absolutely. It's like anybody that's insecure. That it's You ask any successful person who appears successful, they probably are bedeviled by a fear of failure. And there's a, mm. there's a, a graphic design which has struck me about an iceberg where it all looks grand and swimmingly on top. But who knows what's going mm. on? Mm. Or you could have a duck you know, that, that swims on top. One doesn't know. It's it's an inherent drive, do you, I think. Do you also think the festivals that we have going through the year put guilt feeling onto us? I mean, some are, some are very cheery festivals, as we know, but others talk about, I mean, Shavuot, for instance, they read the Book of Ruth, mm. who was, who lost her husband and... <sighs> And uh, daughters in daughters in laws lost. It. So Ruth's sons also died. Oh, it was Naomi's sons, I think, that died. It wasn't Ruth, wasn't it? Too. And and then they went off to find their own way. So so they have, they've got that sort of guilt going on there. Yeah, but you and it, should. And yet we're celebrating because it's a joyous festival. Because you get away, lot. but you get away from the guilt all the time because mm. it because of the enjoyment of the festival. Mm. And equally on Yom Kippur, one of the greatest things about it is on the Day of Atonement. You go into the synagogue, and although you pray for 25 hours and fast, and you beg God to forgive you, you are told before you even start that God has already forgiven you. Mm. Mm. And that's what the whole day is for, to refresh yourself, to try and renew yourself. Mm. I kind of own it, isn't it? It's, I, I love the story of Ruth, because I think... They were both very strong women for me, Naomi and Ruth, where they, you know, two women on their own going through the desert back to Bethlehem. And I just, I just said, it's an amazing story. Well, yeah. you and but, she have something in common because yeah. she was the convert. Well, yes. I mean, she, yeah, possibly. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but what you're saying about Yom Kippur, for me, what I experienced is that it wasn't about, at the end of the day, it wasn't about God's forgiveness. It was about forgiving oneself and making amends. I think for me, it's always about making the amends to reflect over the year and think, have I done something that I haven't either forgiven somebody for or do I need to make an amend? Do I need to say sorry, but not just to say sorry? Is there a... An to do more. I, yeah. think, do I, think, more. Uh, I think our listeners, particularly those who aren't Jewish, should not think that all our festivals are doom and gloom. No, We've got no. Purim where people dress up, get drunk. Uh, you know, get drunk. You know, the Jews can be great mm. drinkers of well, uh, well, vodka, you know, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Even if you talk about Pesach, I mean, we're talking about Absolutely. coming out of Egypt, but, the, but it's a joyous festival. Oh, it's and it psychological think, freedom yeah. Yeah. In, terms of, in terms of that. And there's always the food, there's always the food element. Yeah. And the thing that is, I think, that... Yeah. can 
unites Jewish people as well is, a, is the humour. The humour yes, is yeah. just astonishing and yeah. the talent. I'll never forget being in Germany and watching a dub version of Seinfeld. So Seinfeld in German and I mean, <laughs> 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 it was just like so weird. <laughs> also, do you think our humour has come out of our burden and, and our guilt feeling and, mm. and the problems that our grandparents, great-grandparents and so on Oh, had? absolutely. Mm. And, I mean, it, and we've kept that humour to keep us buoyant. It's and come top. out of persecution. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. But that's all part of the whole... <laughs> the rich tapestry, <laughs> yes. I guess, of being Jewish. And that's a good way in which to end the discussion because our time is up. But it's been absolutely fascinating and thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to our guests, Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue, Jane Goff, and lawyer, Denise Lester. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on twitter we are at jewishviewsuk and of course all of those details can be found at our website jewishviews.co.uk well it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from rabbi mashiach kalati of edgeware shavuot which commemorates the giving of the torah but there are actually two festivals which commemorates celebrating the Torah, the other one being Simchat Torah, which is a few months ahead. How come we have two festivals to do with the giving of the Torah? On Shavuot, we accepted the Torah unconditionally. We said as a nation, Naseh Venishma. We said, I-, I will keep and I will do, which means we accept it unconditionally. Whatever was thrown at us, we would accept what God had given us. But we were uncomfortable after that day. We really didn't know what to expect, what Hashem would throw at us. And that's why we have an extra festival on Simchat Torah to reaffirm the connection that we made on that very special day of Shavuot. And when we always increase that love between ourselves and Hashem until we reach that glorious day of Simchat Torah when it will only be God and us. It's funny, you know, listening to Rabbi Kalati there, I don't know whether or not I've ever really stopped and thought of the reason why we have two festivals celebrating the giving of the Torah. For me, I've just always taken each festival as it comes. And isn't it strange, after all these years of practicing Judaism and working so heavily within the Jewish community, I still feel as if every given turn and every time I hear another rabbinic thought, there's always something that I've not quite worked out or something that I've not quite understood or realized. And that's just yet another example. Thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Mashiach Kalati there from Edgware with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to our guests, Rabbi Dov Benyakov Kurtzman, telling us about MA17 Pop-Up Centre, helping the victims of the Manchester bombing. David Polak talking about the third generation dreaming about the Holocaust event that's on at JW3 on the 11th of June. John Benjamin, the chair of the UK Friends of the Israel Guide Dog Centre. Thanks to all our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Sue Greenberg and Tony Honigberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. 
The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.